Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Call, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the very sweet and so- person who always has my back, the one and only DJ. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, when we started this cast, you uh, were talking about feeling a little under the weather. So it's I'm a like, little you know, under the weather today, folks. So I've if I say out of, dumb of stuff. Work for, for like easier things than that, you know, like, ah, oh, my toe hurts. I don't feel like going to work today. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm like trying to decide if I feel bad enough to call in sick for work tomorrow. We'll see. We'll see. But anyway, nobody at home cares about this. So first of all, how are you, DJ? I've been talking about myself since we got on the phone. How are you? I'm fine. Um, One of our uh, close friends and neighbors brought over some uh, mason jars full of uh, cocktailed booze. Ooh, what kind of cocktailed booze? I don't. uh, She told me it had like a bunch of like there was like a I guess apparently they make a peach flavored crown royal. What? Yeah, I had no idea. That um, sounds amazing. I yeah, would like to and, know more about that. And the jar was like a pink jar of rando stuff she concocted and then like a couple of coffee cups full of like some kind of liqueur that she concocted. Holy um, crap. I, I did Is not dive in. Is this your bartendress friend? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. See, you got the hookup over there. Oh yeah, you guys would be instant friends. She's like a, a block away from us and occasionally porches at our place. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, as as older people, not super old, but old enough, uh, we made it all the way to people like of a ten certain o'clock. Age. <laughs> we were up till ten o'clock at night, and then Woo! got up in the morning. It was crazy. Mm. It was an adventure. Uh, phones were forgotten, and things were misplaced, and keys were lost. You know, <laughs> the normal we're stuff. on two very different ends of the spectrum today. <laughs> You're in like party mode, and I'm just like. <laughs> Someone put me under a weighted blanket. <laughs> so this should be interesting. It should be an interesting uh, discussion. Although this is a really, I don't know. This is quite this is an a U chapter. So um, oh, you think? Oh, oh I yeah. Felt like it's, it's all so like, tense. It's all like I feel this way, and let's talk about our plan, and then let's talk about our plan some more. And boy, I have a plan. Did I tell you about that? Let's not think too much about the plan, but we have a plan. Plan <laughs> is coming. Plan, 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 plan. <laughs> As and you're saying story. this, I guess I am realizing this is a me chapter. <laughs> this was my concern of your uh, uh, enthusiasm is like, I don't have a lot to say. I could basically sum this up in, <laughs> shoot, two minutes. Like, okay, uh, well, don't do that because I have a lot to say. <laughs> and I'm looking at all your stars and thinking like, other than the flashbacks like, and the like... Oh, weird no. asides that have nothing to do with anything in particular other than Stephen King wanted to tell like a quick graveyard story like there's oh, no, lot. there's lots of subtle stuff in this one there's some great world building there's some you know some cool duality that between our groups of people there's all kinds of stuff in this section it's a little more subtle but it's there <laughs> it's there I <laughs> promise you it's there <laughs> okay okay so before we go too far that direction like uh, we normally uh, pick up with some house cleaning stuff so what do you got for us rachel all right so our plan for this episode is we're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about wizard and glass part three come reap chapter five wizard's glass and then we'll close out the show with our thoughts on episode six of the stand and do some fun listener feedback uh, from our facebook group actually this one's a little different i, I asked the listeners for a personal store a personal story and they're really fun and then there's some that i was like 
I'm going to (laughs) cry. So that'll be fun. We'll get into that at the end of the show. So before we get into any of that, though, DJ, can you please remind our listeners of our spoiler policy on this podcast? Like a locked door to a crypt where the creepy babies are stored. Uh, (laughs) We will uh, let you know before we unlock that lock and swing open the creaky door of spoilers (laughs) and let those ghosts out into the present time. So there's your warning. We will tell you in advance if anything crosses the threshold at night before the break of dawn. Dun, dun, dun. I'm trying to think if there's any spoilers. I mean, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter, but I don't feel like anything is, I think the stuff that they're foreshadowing is so obvious that is it really foreshadowed when like, they're like, here's the thing we're going to do. Right. Right, exactly. So I think I think we're good. I think we're okay. But if something comes up, we'll definitely let you know. All right, DJ, where did we leave off last time? Uh, so we we got a, a grumpy Rhea. Um, <laughs> grumpy, uh, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> licking her poor snake friend who has been oh, shot by Roland and, uh, you know, trying to bring him back with some chance and realizing that uh, that isn't going to work. And uh, the guys probably should have... Uh, Ended her while they had the chance, foreshadowing. And, uh, yeah, and then we, you know, we had uh, Jonas kind of, like, plathering and being creeped out. And that's pretty much it for the the gang. Uh, We also, uh, if if you don't remember, there was the the kind of um, climax of of Keith Burton Roland and their their little uh, brouhaha. And, like, here's a speck of dirt. You see that right there, buddy? Bam. <laughs> so i think in those like weird rando phrases that i just spit out i basically summed up where we left off because at this point in Stephen king's writing style we're sort of getting like a days of our lives view of things where it just quickly clips between thing to thing to thing to thing and yeah. that doesn't stop because as we move on and i will ask you one question i thought this chapter was um the wizard's rainbow not the wizard's class oh is it the wizard's rainbow it might be okay because i just i'm looking at your notes now no i I think i probably wrote the wizard's glass but it's probably the wizard's rainbow (laughs) okay jk again i'm a little under the weather folks (laughs) so i apologize for that let me double check and i might be wrong too i just uh... no you're probably as you're saying it it's sounding correct It is indeed the Withers and Wizards Rainbow. God damn it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm like, uh, maybe, I, maybe I read the wrong chapter. I mean, I would feel really bad if I told you to read the wrong one. Okay, let me fix that in the notes so that I don't keep saying it. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the Wizards Rainbow. <laughs> okay, so we, we swing in and we've got... Um, uh, DePape, uh, he's basically like heading up to uh, to the Coral Thorin's room, and like Coral Thorin's in there, and he's like a little bit surprised because the girl came with the room. I guess is what he says. Yeah, yeah. I think he thought that Jonas was just using the room, and then when she was in there, when they're about to have their meeting, he was like, "Huh? What? What are you doing here?" Yep, yep. And so, like, and if you don't remember, we left off with those two having, like, a little romp in the hay. A little boom, um, boom room. And, and apparently, like, that's gone up a notch, and now they're yeah. uh, spending more time together. <laughs> and apparently the rest of the gang doesn't think much of her looks. Uh, I, I believe the term, uh, the description was, like, a pair of mosquito bumps. 
and like not not much uh, to look at you know um but we get a little insight into the relationship uh he's got his shirt off and she's like longingly looking at his back and they're discussing the plan uh, um apparently he's upset because the the rallying he gave the boys of like killing their pigeons and peeing on their stuff and, and messing up their place didn't get them to come around their their hillock and uh, expose or attack or do anything particular mm-hmm. uh to to jump out at him um also they basically have things going on with latigo who is wanting to make sure that everything is going well with the oil patch and stuff is moving um, we find out that he's hoping that they're going to uh, maybe attack or stop one of the shipments as they come through. Latigo has a group of around 100 or so uh, army men that are there to assist him. Mm-hmm. And these guys, uh, Latigo kind of makes it sound like they're well-trained, but we get the like um, sort of side information that these guys probably haven't seen much action at all. And that really the only one worth a darn are probably a few of the captains that are in charge of the entire group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I mean, like, I think that's described in colorful terms where it's like uh, only a few of them could even figure out how to pee on the ground if they wanted to or something like that. <laughs> right, right. I think it was like, uh, I can't It was something about like using their dicks to what pass water through them. I'm yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then we also get, like, a little insight into the glass that, like, Rachel and I have kind of been speculating about. And I actually completely forgot about a lot of this. Um, But it's good that I think we were basically speculating in the right direction. Um, The wizard's glass uh, had to get get passed on because if you have it for too long, it can kind of eat away at you and, like, Mm -hmm. leave you like a madman with rabies. And apparently rabies is a super scary thing because uh, it gets the hackles of a couple of the guys up just thinking about rabies in general Mm -hmm. and uh so what we learn is that you have to pass this thing on to someone to hold on to it because it needs to feed off of them to stay somewhat healthy itself but if you hold on to it for too long yourself then you will be the victim of of the glass Mm -hmm. and so really leaving it with Rhea was that was the point was to give it something to eat while they were waiting for it to be used again to spy on something uh you know out in the future or something that's going on somewhere else so that they have a strategic advantage over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is pretty cool. Um, yeah. That, like, information right there is is pretty interesting. But then to cap it all off, we find out that uh, Coral is in league with Jonas to uh, murder her brother. Yep. Mm-hmm. And And at that moment, like, we get this sort of, like, extra insight into their relationship yeah that coral is just as nasty as jonas is and that's why they're great together mm-hmm. um we also find out that rhymer is kind of getting cut out of the out of the game <laughs> literally uh-huh <laughs> so he may also fall victim to this uh sinister plot which will end up being two bodies to blame on these boys who are obviously in league with the man in black and then they can use that fervor to whip up the crowd and have these guys hung or whatever yeah so that's the meat and potatoes of this little bit mm-hmm. and you've got uh four stars here so anything i missed i'm gonna throw it right to you okay cool so let's go back to the beginning basically when de pape and riddles get to Cor- coral's room and they're surprised to see her there 
And I mean, like you said, we kind of figure out that, oh, they've got something a little more serious here than we thought at first. Like it looked just like a, you know, a one night stand that they both had a great time, but clearly things have developed between them to the point where Coral is now in on the plan. Uh, And so I was thinking about how with her in on the mix, the big coffin hunters have essentially created their own quartet. And it actually, it mirrors the one that's happening with Roland, right? Because in this chapter, we see a similar group of people come together. So we've got the leader, his two sidekicks, and the person he's romantically connected to. And that's the same exact thing that we see in when we get to Roland and the gang is that we have that same kind of group coming together. And it's the first way that these two, these two meetings and these two groups really begin to mirror each other. And that's kind of the reoccurring thing that happens throughout this chapter is that we are really juxtaposing these two meetings against one another. And you can see how they're kind of matching up against each other and how they're kind of, on the same page in some ways that's really interesting and something that it's a continued motif that we've seen throughout the this book is that roland is comparing the past and the future and like we see how these things are cyclical and how they rhyme and uh yeah so that's the first thing in this section so latigo basically makes jonas make a promise to him about being able to take care of these kids right he there's a great line in here about how he, he calls uh how walter is as Farson's underliner, which is such a great line, but he's very concerned about this. And he kind of puts Jonas on the spot and makes him promise that he can actually do something. And there's some really subtle character work here. We see that when he is nervous to answer this question and he knows that he needs to get this answer right, he reaches over and puts his hands on Coral's leg, which is this very intimate kind of gesture but also is indicates how their relationship has evolved that she's the person that he's reaching to in a moment of comfort when he's feeling vulnerable it's just kind of it it's an interesting moment it's like a good character building moment and it's a moment where we see some vulnerability in jonas which to me is good villain writing you know i really i know jonas is our antagonist but i really like him i think he is a really fascinating character with a lot of depth and it's these little unnecessary character moments that give him that depth and tells us a lot about how that relationship has evolved well there's also a moment there too where um when he's internally debating he goes through the scenario where the answer to this could mean an extra bonus at the end of the job or them you know hanging from a noose or or whatever yeah Uh, and then the other thing i wanted to kind of point out is um Basically, through this little section, they aren't very kind to Coral Thorin and her looks. But in this moment where he reaches for her legs, like the dichotomy switches and yeah. everybody like glances over and they're like, not too bad, Coral, not too bad at all. <laughs> Which yeah, yeah, was like a, a strange moment that sort of maybe underlines what you were talking about. Um, yeah the point i was like lingering to is is basically in one juxtaposition we have roland and his two friends sort of like brotherly loving um you know his 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 girlfriend yeah and then in this one we have the evil version of that which is like they were all turned off until they saw that leg and they're like "Ooh, i could get some of that too (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and so it's like sort of the evil version of (laughs) the group right well i do think it also speaks to a shift that happens in this chapter where jonas's 
explaining what the plan is and then it gets to the part where he's talking about how they're going to deal with uh, Rhea and he says he's going to send Avery and Reimer and Latigo says no Reimer's going to be busy and then Coral speaks speaks up and says Reimer's going to be busy getting killed and very telling that it's Coral that tells Jonas this which means that she and Latigo were on the same page about this, but he is not. And it tells you a little bit very subtly about the hierarchy of this dynamic, that Coral is not just the hanger on. She actually is an integral, if not more senior position in this group. And I thought that was a interesting, subtle moment. Um, one other question I wanted to throw at you is like their plan to fervor up the crowd and blame these three boys on, being Farson's men is a little transparent in the fact that like the entire town is turning a blind eye to Latigo and the gang and kind of know exactly what they're up to, including and and surrounding the mayor and the horsemen's association and so on. So how do they just expect it to be like kind of a, a, a I don't know, maybe um like a low mo- momentum fervor to get these guys to hang them? Or do um, they actually like think that they'll be able to whip the crowd up into a, a real actual frenzy? I think what we can take away from this is that though the horseman association and the Rhymer and Thorne, all those people are in on this plot. The sort of average person in town isn't like the farmers, the fishermen like working class people in that town are not in the loop and so they're counting on being able to get them fired up and frame and kill roland and his friends so i think the takeaway there is there is still some people in town who are in the dark Uh, and they're going to use them to do their dirty work which is like i mean it is it tactically good idea sure but i think it says a lot about (laughs) you know jonas's character that he has no interest in taking this on like head on right he is going to use this t- the townspeople to do his dirty work which <laughs> well you know, and, and planning wise like it's a little bit iffy because you never know how a mob's going to react to something true although I, it seems like coral who is someone who probably has existing relationships with a lot of these people as this person who runs the travelers Inn is going to be able to be that perfect person sort of in the middle who's like justified in getting everybody riled up because it's her brother that's been murdered the mayor but at the same time they all know her uh. and so i think yeah so st- like tactically she's a very important and a useful tool but she's not really a tool because she's actually the one doing a lot of the planning which i thought was very interesting so speaking of latigo we finally get to meet him we've been hearing his name for a while now and i don't know about you but he was definitely not what i was expecting he kind of sounded um so there's a moment in in the description of latigo where like he they describe him as a man from an area where uh Dear sex is a normal thing if you're not fast enough to keep up with your sister. <laughs> what is with Jonas and all the animal fucking? And it's like, and you're like, well, okay. And then um, there's a moment too where Latigo himself acknowledges that like he won't necessarily be able to pull off like a local accent or a local uh, right. style and he'll be spotted pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And, and so the assumption is, is that instead of like maybe being a, a more powerful character that's like he just happens to be higher up the food chain as opposed to like 
intentionally and purposefully put up the food uh, chain. You know well, what I mean? Like, I mean, I kind of feel like he is definitely someone. The reason he looks strange is because they're trying to put like low profile and he stands out because he obviously is from somewhere else. Uh, okay. So he's in disguise and maybe not so well done. But yeah, I and I also think we have to remember, like, consider the source here. This is like Jonas describing people. This is Jonas's perspective on him. And everybody, the way he describes them, like, it has some element of animal fucking in it. <laughs> and so so I don't I don't know. He says he's like a hard man. So I think it's clear that he is someone who comes across as intense and scary and um not to be messed with but at the same time and i think it comes back to this sort of arrogance of jonas and a similar arrogance that roland and the boys had when they first came to town of being from that part of the world from being from gilead where they do kind of look down on these sort of country folk and so he is i think doing that a little bit with Hmm. with latigo like yeah he's the he's the big bad guy and he's farson's right hand or left hand man or whatever but at the same time you know he's kind of country he probably fucked some reindeers like <laughs> and so i i think that tells you as much about uh jonas as it does latigo himself uh so latigo like i said is very concerned about dealing with the boys who are in- here from in world and what i think is very interesting here is that jonas is like yeah i'm not I'm not convinced that this is actually even about Farson. He thinks essentially that potentially that if they're here for a reason, it's, it has to do with his own call, which I thought was very telling. And I get the sense that maybe these kids coming from, from Gilead with these guns, clearly coming from the background of, of at least training to be a gunslinger like that is bringing up some stuff for Jonas and he so he is kind of like oh this is about me like whether he realizes that consciously it kind of seems like he has in the same way that Roland has kind of decided that he will bend caught to his will mm-hmm. like er, he Jonas is kind of arrogantly centering himself and thinking like, oh, no, this fight with these kids is actually about me and my car, which I thought was was really interesting because he also continues to talk about them like they're boys. Like he's frustrated that his trick didn't work, but he's still kind of like, you know, kind of whatever. They're just kids. We got this. We'll take him out, whatever. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with him refusing to actually see who they are because like they're, it's like a personal, it's like personal for him, you know, he, and he doesn't want to show the kind of respect for the gunslingers because of his own insecurity and bitterness that comes through in this section, which, you know, maybe that will work out in our gunslingers favor because we find out that they're planning on attacking them the day before reap and they've like made it look like they're going to attack them on the day of reap and you can hope oh like rolling they'll get hip to this but as we learn as the chapter goes on that's not necessarily true so this kind of blind spot may be something that kind of counteracts that i don't know we'll see we'll see what happens uh the other thing that may be counteracting that is that latigo doesn't know what a thinny is and since we know that's such an integral part of roland's plan for his men like that's a that's something in his favor. Like if we're making a pros and cons checklist, I think <laughs> the fact that Latigo has no idea what a thinny is and his like super unseasoned men won't either is probably we could put that under 
the column of Roland. Yeah, I mean, he like literally asks, like, "What's that noise? <laughs> I don't like it. It's bothering the men." <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, it's you a don't thinny. Wanna... Get with it. Everybody yep. knows." But I guess they don't have them up in like reindeer humping land. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Next section. That's it for the section. <laughs> I told you I had a lot. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, basically then we get an aside from Stephen King where he tells this little story about uh, two lovers um, in a town. And this is like a story that can be told in any town and is often sort of duplicated in a in a non-specific sort of way. So one girl is – in love with the boy and the boy is a little unstable, but he's handsome and uh, she's a little bit flaky and has somebody else. And uh, she goes to call it off and uh, laughs at the wrong time. And the boy, um, I shouldn't laugh, but he bashes her head in with a, uh, with the stone and then realizes what he's done and like kisses her and die and, you know, kills himself. And like, then they find him in dead and embraced in bloody kisses, I guess, which, um, then they're buried in the, uh, um, mausoleum that's, you know, a haunt supposedly haunted and it's the Thorin's mausoleum, which is kind of extra funny because the Thorin's probably weren't around during the time this possibly fictitious story mm-hmm. <laughs> was concocted. So it's, it, it's kind of a fun aside. And the reason Stephen King goes to that is because, um, He's basically pointing out that that's the location they've chosen for Susan to meet uh, Roland and the gang uh, in there to discuss what what comes next in their quartet. And and then we get this other side of Susan sort of interacting with Aunt Cord, who has gone somewhat hysterical and possibly lost her wits yeah, um, to the point good. where she she smells weird and is twitchy and like just isn't right and so she comes home from just doing some basic stuff uh preparing for reap day with uh you know some uh paper and painting and and so on and aunt court immediately accuses her of being with roland because she has some of that paint on her on her dress Mm -hmm. and and like she has to force force her to actually like touch it and smell it to prove that that it was just paint from the uh, event. And so even when that happens, she's like, you know, Aunt Cord is still on such edge that she's like, no, nah, well, maybe this time, but next time, you know. <laughs> and it's just kind of gotten crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy how fast she's, like, devolved. Gen- yeah, 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 yeah. It's not good. It's not good. Yeah, and so then we also get, like, a little aside that in order to go meet Roland and the gang, Susan has had to uh, come up with a more elaborate story. So she's gotten um, she's gotten Olive to write her a note, basically, to say that she's going to be staying at Seafront, mm-hmm. and uses that as her excuse to Poor sneak Olive. off. Yeah, Poor and which Olive is just like she's still being painted, and I'm pretty sure it's the case as uh, a sad wife who wishes her husband like paid more attention to her and is like mm-hmm. not not happy and so she's just kind of like well i guess this is the woman of the house i'll write a note for her no problem not even gonna ask why mm-hmm. you know and so it's 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 super sad um and, and so uh that's the excuse she uses to go out and plather with roland and uh we also get a little insight into uh susan kind of wanting to see roland again just to make sure that he's not a dream 
Yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, like, they've been going out and, and having their trisks here and there. And yeah. that's been on break for a while, so... You know. Right, because Cord's having her followed like a psycho. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Th- okay, so this section, as you said, opens with this sort of urban legend. And it's essentially the mid-world version of Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> which of course serves as a reminder for the literary inspiration of this book. Uh, wait, wait, is it a, cause Romeo and Juliet's a tragedy. This one's like a guy is crazy <laughs> and like takes it the wrong way. Whereas with Romeo and Juliet, it's like he didn't have patience to wait for her to wake up. Right. Right. But I mean, it kind of ends with the two lovers dead together um, <laughs> on the okay. side of a mausoleum. Now I got to underline that too. She she wanted to leave him. So then it's really just yeah. one lover. <laughs> right. But there is this line in here that says, he replied that it would never end. It was written in the stars. She told him that, that it might be, but at some point the constellation has changed, which is essentially star-crossed lovers, hmm. okay. which are, which is the Romeo and Juliet story, right? Like that's how the Romeo and Juliet story starts with the like, Starcrest lovers quote blah 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 right yeah yeah so so this is kind of like telephone version of romeo and juliet right like, like so cheap, this cheap is, version it, well i mean it's like it's been told over and over again and like every town has their slight variations on it and like you can see how the origin story might be romeo and juliet and this is what it became through various retellings but also through the lens of the community that it's in right because every town has its own version and i think it is uh so is this like the threaded stock version of romeo and juliet being told yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's also like not a great like in terms of foreshadowing, it's not super great that it's about this super violent end for the woman <laughs> who essentially gets beaten to death by someone who loves her. Like that's that's not great for our Susan, I think. If we if this is a foreshadowing kind of thing, and since this is a Romeo and Juliet story, I think it's probably safe to assume that. And the other thing is, is they don't just meet in the cemetery, but they move their conversation to the inside of the Thorin Mausoleum, who is sort of the kind of upper crust of this area, right? And mm-hmm. again, this is another link to Romeo and Juliet, where the final scene of that story ends in the Capulet Mausoleum, which is, of course, the upper crust of Christopher Verona. But and if you think about it, like this this conversation that they're having, this plan that they're hatching in this scene, it's starting in a place of literal death, where mm-hmm. two star the story of two star cross lovers died in local legend. And I I feel like there are layers of bad omens here that are making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> and then one last Romeo and Juliet metaphor here is that you know, it starts with Roland, well, doesn't start, it starts with the Romeo and Juliet thing, but then we find out that he went to go get her, when he went to go get her, he got, she climbed out of her balcony and down the side of the wall, which is again, another Juliet illusion. So we're like meant to kind of link her to Juliet, and then we're supposed to link Romeo and Juliet to the story, and all of that together is not boding well for our, you know, our beloved Susan. There's also a moment, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I thought when they walked into the mausoleum, there were actually, like, old flower petals along the ground. Yes. Yep. Yes. And, and it I was think a specific type of flower, um, underlined DJ's three favorite. times. <laughs> Known rose lover DJ did notice the <laughs> rose petals. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, when I when I uh, uh, saw that, I was like, "Rose petal, God." Were you like <laughs> mentally stamping them into the ground? Well, there's a, there's a owls. like. I don't know if it's a Donnie Darko or what movie it is, but there's like a moment where like someone whispers like "Rose petal," and it's like a thing that has been mocked and. Are you thinking of Rosebud? Is it Rosebud? Maybe it's yeah, Rosebud. it's from yeah, Citizen yeah. Kane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then like it's it's mocked in like The Simpsons and and That's various hilarious. other like. Hilarious! I literally watched that episode of The Simpsons last night when I was going to sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's the one where he wants his teddy bear. <laughs> oh man um okay so uh that's about it for that little uh side so then um basically we get we cut to susan walking into this uh mausoleum uh alan and uh elaine and keith bird are basically um they're sort of trying to do like a comical bow like yeah not they're not intending to be comical but because they're trying to do it simultaneously and mimic sort of an adult gesture Uh that their kids they're sort of misperforming it and and like sort of roboting it out and it's also like goofy gilead for like very formal formal stuff yeah yeah and she's like come on now i'm a down-to-earth country girl (laughs) okay stop (laughs) and and there's a moment here and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but where she she looks at at Keith Burt and uh-huh. is like, um, perhaps yeah, if I would have met you first, you would have been the one instead of Roland, you know? Mm-hmm. They have and chemistry. Like, yeah, and that moment is like, well, really, then it was sort of fate or call or like whatever that it all ended up turning out in this manner, and and that's how close uh keith burton and roland are in looks and style and so on and that's pro- so interesting my take was like freaking teenagers <laughs> like oh. after all this like we're meant to be together caw, 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 caw. then she sees like his hot friend and she's like hold on i'd bet you first maybe you would have been my call. I just thought it was funny after this whole book of them being like, Oh, it's fate. It's fate. It's fate. That the first time she sees another cutie, she's like, "Hmm, hello, but that's just, (laughs) I think it reinforces that they're teenagers. You know what I mean? Like all of that feels very accurate to being a teenager. Like the intense connection that you have with someone and the longing, but then also like the wandering eye, it all feels (laughs) perfectly hormonally teenaged Mm, the wandering guy that's funny um (laughs) and and so basically there's a moment where uh there's a little bit of an apology and uh they sort of accept her in um she loves roland and roland loves her and these two are now like bringing her in as as part of their content uh she sort of sits between them and they like are protectively guarding her (laughs) Yeah. As they have these conversations about like what the plan is and what's going on. Um, and I could actually roll through this in like one second. So uh, this is actually three or four sections of this chapter. Um, and I won't barrel through too fast, but uh, basically they all sit there. There's some interaction. They kind of talk about what's going on, um, what they think the plan should be. Uh, there's the moment of like reckoning where everybody sort of gets 
gets happy with each other and like you get these little vignettes of her interacting with Elaine and Keith Bird as like now sort of family and mm-hmm. protective of her and her feelings and um, how Roland may possibly treat her. There's also a moment where she imagines herself in somewhere besides um, this small town living outside of this bubble, yeah. which is like, sort of a soft note of the future to come and that like Roland is that future that will take her to those places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they basically just like cover what the, the plan or what the plan is, um, you know, running around, uh, tricking the men into going into the, uh, humble or is it not humble Canyon? Um, shoot. Uh, what's the name of the Canyon? Eibolt. Eibolt, not Humboldt. Hum- Humboldt is a county. That's a, yeah, that's a different, whole different thing. That's a yeah, murder mountain. Instead <laughs> of a thinny, it's uh, more like um, some resin stuck it's to like the trees. like a smoky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the basic game plan is to chase him down into uh, the canyon, uh, blow up some tankers to disrupt and also kill some of the men as well, and then start a brush fire uh, early because the people have already started piling up all the um tumbleweeds and brush and so on in front of the mouth to sort of quiet and we heard this story earlier about keeping the cattle out of the um the thinny and and keeping uh the thinny quiet with the smoke from these fires so i've spun through a lot really fast that's fine but i'm gonna back up and hand it over to you and all these little subtle details that i don't really pay as much attention to for sure no worries no worries so first thing we talked a little bit about how this mirrors the past and the present, these two meetings, right? So this conversation that they have inside the mausoleum, Roland kicks things off with the statement, we are Cotet, which is exactly the same way that Roland began his talk with Eddie, Susanna, and Jake and Oi when they first sat down together, all together, to share one another's stories. Like, if you recall, it was a situation where you know he was like let's we'll talk about it but let's wait till we can like really talk about it and then they have that conversation where they exchange stories about you know their dreams and they discover that they've been sharing Kath and Roland talks about how the original Jake and he talks about the man in black and the palaver like oh they basically have their little come to Jesus moment and this is the moment where they like really kind of become content and share information it's right before they're heading over to the bridge into blood and mm-hmm. so i kind of felt like not only does this show the formalization of the quartet in terms of seeing these two scenes together but also there's something almost ceremonial about it the fact that the even though the specifics of what they're saying is different the the fact that they're like comparing notes and the type of conversation that they're having shows sort of how these scenes rhyme and again, like I said, that is a big theme of this chapter. You already covered the rose petals. So we don't got to talk about that. Um, <laughs> this is where there is, man, this is where you recognize that these are ki- their kids and they are really in over their head. Cuthbert describes the same thing that we heard about from their perspective of Sheriff Avery bringing this, them this note about how they're going, they can't come to the fair because it's, you know, custom, but it's obviously bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. And we're hoping as the audience that they're going to be like, wow, this is so obvious and they're going to be wise to it. But instead, what we learn is that they are taking the bait. And 
Wait, what? No, hold on, hold on, hold on. So Susan like actually is aghast when she hears this little uh, aside, and she's aghast. Yes, because she's that's aghast. not the town that she knows. And exactly. like, I I thought that was cleared up as not being like a thing, and that those guys thought it was like a laughable move okay. for him to like. Am I wrong? A yes and no. Okay, okay. so. <laughs> Yes, she is aghast, and she confirms that obviously that isn't is the bullshit. case. But what what Cooper has hubris around, what they are are missing, is the fact that the the letter was meant to make them think that they were coming on Reaping Day, that it was meant to be an obvious like you can't come here, and but they're so stupid they've given away the game that they're going to attack on Reaping Day. But what Jonas is actually planning is for them to think that, to for them to think that they're smart and that they figured out this ploy. But he actually intends to attack the day before that. So they're going to be on guard on Reaping Day, but they won't be on guard the day before. And so what we find out here is that they did take the bait. They do think they're coming on Reaping Day, not the day before. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, so... It's not great. <laughs> this was this was hard to hear, but it made me think a lot about have you ever heard of um Hitchcock's bomb theory? No. Okay. So I I literally just learned about this recently and I was realizing that this so is So you'd a, say it's the bomb? <laughs> it is the bomb. Um Sorry. Oh my god. Oh my god, David. Oh my god. Even when I don't feel good, you make me laugh. <laughs> Our 1990s, like, age-dated The Bomb reference. Thebomb.com, baby. Okay, so, all right. So Hitchcock had this theory of surprise versus suspense. And this is something that I think Stephen King utilizes a lot in his books, which is you can have, say there's a, ta- a bomb under the table and you have two characters. And you can have that bomb explode. And then as an audience, you're like, oh, my God, surprised. But that kind of dissipates quickly. Or you can let the audience know that there's a bomb under the table that the two characters don't know about. And what that creates is suspense, prolonged suspense, torturous suspense that you're like desperate to let the characters, you want to tell the characters there's a bomb under the table. And this scene right here is essentially the bomb under the table. Like we know that that Jonas and the gang are going to strike the day before, but our characters don't. And so that creates tension and suspense and this sense of foreboding that our characters are really in a lot more trouble than they think, even though Cuthbert is beside himself. He can barely even say the words because he thinks that he is so ahead of the game. So. (sighs) (laughs) Take a deep breath. Yeah. You got this. And now, I mean, like, I'm just like, oh, that's like, it was hard to listen to. But at the same time, like I had to tip my hat to Stephen King because it's so effectively employed here. (laughs) Um, I definitely am feeling all of those things that Hitchcock described. (laughs) Uh, Well, the only other thing I I forgot to mention, and like you can probably dive into this, is like there's a certain amount of protecting Shimi that's coming from from, uh, uh, Keith Burt, and he wants to make sure that Shimi's okay. And at the same time, they're like, well, uh, Susan's going to need some help, so maybe we need to employ (laughs) Shimi. Yeah, I, I, it makes me love Cuthbert even more, like, that his first thoughts are of Shimi, and he continues to look out for this kid. Like, there is sort of this two ways that his character could have gone. Like, as the jokester, he could have had that mean streak. You know what I'm talking about, that kid that's really funny, but he's cruel. 
he's the opposite of that. He's really funny, but he always kicks up and never kicks down. And like you see what a huge heart he has, that his thought is always of Shimi. It was with the note when he was like, we have to protect Shimi. And now when they're, he's like, okay, we can use him in this plan, but he won't agree to it until after Roland has promised that they'll take Shimi with him. And it just makes me love Cuthbert even more, but it also just makes me feel like my heart is about to get broken over Shimi. So I'm like, oh, I'm of two minds. The other thing we see here is that Elaine and Cuthbert, the way that they behave around Susan has completely changed. Like there's this moment that we kind of breezed past about when Susan is just like, I hope you don't hate me. And in typical fashion, Elaine is like, nope, we don't hate you. Nope, nope, nope. Um, but Cuthbert like takes a moment and says like, no, I, you, I love Roland and Roland, you love, and Roland loves you. So I love you. And it's, it's kind of like this beautiful moment that is also extremely bittersweet because I couldn't help but ask like, what if Roland had let them in from the beginning? What if they had been cautet from the start? You know, would this have turned out differently? Because they go into this protection mode. Like he sees that her surrounded by them, like two brothers. What if this had been their dynamic from the very beginning? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just kind of great and sad to see. Let's get into the other thing that they talk about, which is the Rhea stuff. Do you want to run through yeah, that yeah. part? Okay. Okay. So um, basically um, there's a, like a, a hanging Chad here where like they realize hanging that. hanging Chad. Right? Oh, <laughs> Uh, where they realize that, like, um, they mentioned the color grapefruit <laughs> and, like, yeah. wait a minute, what? And then, like, that triggers a bunch of memories. Uh, first, it's like, well, now we need to hypnotize Susan to see what Rhea was actually up to. Um, so they start with that, but Roland's hypnotizing isn't enough. He's going to need Elaine's sort of touch to dig deeper into that. So they hypnotize her, get some information about um, Rhea and like kind of how the interaction went. Uh, Susan kind of explains that she got her firewood and then, you know, that Rhea tried to diddle her and she wasn't having it. And then then, like the, the conversation progresses to like the amulet that she had on her neck to hypnotize Susan. And then like the color of her i forget what the term uh stephen king uses in this is but uh, basically glam. her her glam yeah her glam the color of her glam is this grapefruit color and this triggers in roland like a flashback mm-hmm. to his dad and the other dads um sending these guys off to go you know go out into the wilderness and they're actually sort of excited and like he's like you won't find anything interesting and then there's sort of an aside about the birds being there just for them to keep track of the kids and not really for the kids to report much of anything and then like out of the blue his dad's like unless you see a grapefruit color yeah like if you see that then uh we really need to know and like then we get this explanation about the fact that the um, the the wizard's rainbow is actually a, a bunch of these orbs. Each of them had different powers, and he sort of alludes to like a not fairy tale per se, but like a urban well, not even urban legend because I'm pretty sure like this black orb existed. The orb number thirteen. If it rolls towards you, that's 
Yeah. It's not a good thing. That'll get I, you. I have a quote here for you. Okay, um, awesome. So he talks about the different things that they're doing, uh, that they can do. And he says that they're for saying some colors of the wizard's rainbow are reputed to look into the futures, uh, future. Others look into other worlds. Those where the demons live, those where the old people supposedly have gone after they left our world, which is very new information, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> These uh, may also show the location of secret doors which pass between worlds. Other colors, they say, can look far into our own world and see things people would would as soon keep secret. They'd never see the good, only the ill. How much of this is true and how much is myth, no one knows for sure. Except for that we know that this is true because we know how the pink one works. And what he's describing here is the grapefruit in this, yeah, this and, last one and it kind and of validates everything that came yep, before it yep yeah and it's rumored that the the pink glow has been seen uh yeah. coming from like farson's bag when they're they're just about to like have a battle that they thought they were going to win that changes course or changes direction and he eludes them or manages to outmaneuver them in a way mm-hmm. that is like unsuspecting uh, so so yeah so we got the information earlier about uh what would happen uh with the orb and it eating the person that's holding on to it yeah. now we have the rest of the picture of like what this orb has been used for and now we basically wholly understand that uh farson's been getting this orb to do like uh, remote viewing basically yep. and then like sending it off again so that it doesn't spend too much time with him and end up eating him. Cause then uh, the glass is alive and hungry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like basically do, doing this hypnotism, we find out that Susan sparks the interest and tells him uh, where this, where this orb is that Rhea has it. And they try to debate on this for a little bit to decide, you know, should we go destroy it and, and or her? And it's like, no, let's leave her with it for now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, she's occupied with it and it's occupying her. So that's, uh, um, almost like, I don't want to say cruel, but like, it's interesting that they're, they're adult enough to realize that the obsession with that orb will, continue to keep Rhea in her place yeah but also if the orb is eating her then it also has its own like you know side agenda yeah only showing bad stuff and and basically all the stuff we kind of like speculated about like now we know right I know after just weeks and weeks and this is true of a lot of things in this chapter and that's why I was like this chapter is a big deal weeks and weeks of like speculating and wondering and getting frustrated that i don't know everything like it all just came spilling out in this chapter we know the big coffin hunter's plan we know roland's plan we understand the orb we got a whole backstory about the mythology behind the orb like this thing is choco block with info <laughs> choco block <laughs> I stand by it. <laughs> so there's a there's a couple moments in here too uh, where uh, Stephen King wants to underline that Roland realizes how much of a mistake he's made by not bringing this group together previously. Yes. Um, by like himself reflecting on mm-hmm. how they're interacting and what it looks like and asking himself again why he didn't bring the others in on this plan. Good question, Roland. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. So uh, that's something to keep in the back of your mind. And then uh, basically um, Roland is so like sort of uh, um, in a daze from this this uh, flashback that he ends up having to take an elbow 
um, from Keith Burt to to snap out of it. And they bring Susan back out of hypnosis. Um, they chat for a little bit more. Susan kind of like talks about the pink some more and the moon. And then they ride off on their, are they on just one horse together or cause yeah, they're on rusher. Okay. Uh, so they ride back off the seafront. Um, and then Stephen King takes a moment again to reference Shimi and him helping. We don't quite get that part of the plan. Yeah. We don't know like, that one yet. We don't know what Shimi and, and Susan are going to get up to. We just know that they're going to get up to something. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen King takes a moment to like, just have his characters look at the moon. <laughs> And the moon yeah. is like evil and has the a face demon in it. Demon moon. Yep. And, and so it's just this weird moment where you're like, "Huh? Okay. Well, uh, so we got the whole like one lover lives and the other lover dies business." And I hope Shimi. I, I sure hope Shimi. 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 I hope Shimi's okay. I don't like it. I don't care for it. it makes and, me nervous. Yeah, and then you're like, you I know, understand. On top of that, we got Susan, the evil but, moon, so it's it's yeah. It's going to go bad. <laughs> yeah. It's like the omens. So many omens. Okay. So a lot of stuff. We, we, we breezed through a lot of this. So let me just back up a little bit and let's just knock out some things I want to point out. Okay. So first of all, I think this this chapter does a really good job of the of showing the importance of the quartet and how each member brings something different and something valuable to the quartet. I mean, Bert, maybe not so much in this chapter because we see he is totally fallen for whatever is being spewed to him but it's elaine who sees the big hole that they're like overlooking basically so roland is like ready to wrap it up he's like all right we know the plan you know i'm gonna it's ruthless as hell which by the way i really wish where was that ruthless roland when he decided not to kill ria (laughs) that's all i'm saying but whatever but he's like let's wrap it up let's get out of here we got this figured out if you think about this too much it's gonna make us nervous we're gonna freeze but Elaine's like, hold on, wait a minute. We're overlooking something really important here. Yes, you've got Rhea. You think they think they've got Rhea locked down. But what you, we haven't realized is we don't know how she knows what she knows. And that's what essentially leads to them figuring out about the grapefruit. And then the other person that had to be present in order for that connection to be made was Susan. Something that they could have known from the beginning <laughs> had they actually involved her in like if Roland had brought her into the group essentially and you can see all these pieces come together as soon as all these parties are present and and you know it shows again it reinforces why it was such a bad idea that Roland was not being forthcoming the way that he was um and then that leads into like you said we get our first flat we get the big flashback and the big flashback is fascinating for a few different reasons for one Marilyn's rainbow we get all of this mythology that is so awesome I mean all this world building and it it answers some questions it raises some questions it's the stuff that like I love gets my heart pounding I love all this stuff um we also like I said find out that the glass is alive and hungry which reminded me of what we saw in the behavior of the nearby Finney and again continues to spur my conspiracy theory about how like they all kind of have the same origin of magic maybe um but the most important thing we haven't touched on is the interaction that roland has with both of his parents in this oh yeah i forgot about his mom you're right uh the weird wave yes so like he has this conversation with steven deshane and at the end of it there's this really sweet moment 
where they're saying goodbye to each other and Roland and his father each tell one another that they love each other. And I love how this totally goes against stereotype, right? Like Roland and his father are, are the epitome of like strong masculine, stereotypically masculine, traditionally masculine characters. And they have no problem telling each other they love each other. And you see this, you know, like you can see that, this is kind of the dynamic that they have. This is the culture that they have. And you can see it in the friendships between the boys, but it's also like really beautiful to see this in between him and his father, because I feel like this is something I would love to see more of in books in or like in characters in general. Is this like issuing of this, like we don't talk about our feelings. We don't have like softer feelings kind of thing that typically goes with characters like Rollins and Stephen Deshane. So I thought that was really cool and surprising and and against stereotype. On the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) Rollins interaction or lack of interaction with his mother is not great. So we, uh, we learned that Roland, when he was leaving after his father had told him about the grapefruit, the thing that made him kind of like forget about it, was seeing his mother in the window and she waves she's been crying and she waves to him and he doesn't wave back and i think the biggest clear thing here is the clear parallel between his mother and susan that both of these women in his life at this time period the memory he associates with them has to do with them looking out the window and one he waves to and it almost it basically becomes his undoing um, because that's what that's what uh, Cord saw, um, and his mother, who he doesn't wave to, that it essentially also kind of becomes his undoing. Like having these mommy issues that he's having, I mean, it all stirs. Like the whole reason that he's going t- to Hambury is because of what happened with his mother. The the reason that he has this tension with his mother was like discovering this stuff with Merlin. So it, it just is a a reminder that. Every once in a while, we need these like reminders that we know Roland, uh, but we need to remember that in this book, he's like a teenager who's like really hurt by his mom. And it just kind of reminds you like what we're dealing with here are kids. And it's been a little while since we got one of those. (laughs) So, and in a chapter that it's like all about how everything is about to go terribly, it's, it's a rough reminder, but interesting. Yeah, definitely. The other thing. Since we've been through all the stages of the conversation, I talked at the beginning, at the very be- in the first chapter, how we saw the two cotats form and how they mirrored each other in terms their, of their composition. Okay. There's the leader, the two sidekicks, and the romantic interest. That's the word I was looking for before. Romantic interest. What is also interesting is that these two conversations mirror each other as well. They essentially both have the same conversation. They start off with the two sidekicks kind of having to reckon with the fact that this new woman has entered their quartet and how that, co- and then we see the quartet coalesce once all the members are present, but they required all, all parties in order to fully enact their plan. Mm-hmm. The next is that they all catch up on like what they've been up to, what, you know, what they've been doing and what they're planning to do. They talk about their plan for their enemies so in this case, like, um, we hear what he, what uh, Jonas has planned for Roland and the gang and how they're going to strike the day before reaping. 
Then we hear from Roland about how they're planning on striking outside of Eyebolt Cannon and forcing the army into the, the Finney. So, and then finally, they the conversation ultimately ends up talking about Rhea and the glass. And each of them like has kind of like, they talk about how it works. They talk about the fact that she has it, that she's under its spell and they each reach the same exact conclusion that they're just going to leave it where it is for now. So I, and I think it's very obvious that King is drawing parallels by both structuring the makeup of the group and the makeup of the conversation and the order of the conversation and the conclusion of the conversation to be the same. Hmm. Okay. So I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's a larger, larger. I'd have to think about that one for a while, just because it's like, I didn't have that in mind when I went through it. So Mm -hmm. it didn't stick that way for me. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's not the case. It's just that uh, through this new lens, new information has come to light, dude. (laughs) I mean, this is what comes from writing the synopsis. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this sounds familiar. And then like, I started looking at him and I'm like, oh my God, this is the same exact conversation. Hmm. Essentially in structure, some of the details are different, but you just plug in a couple different names and a couple of different actions. The like timeline is the same. The The structure is the same. And I don't think that that is by accident that this is, that they mirror each other. Um, but. Yeah, it makes sense, especially if you're, uh, you know, you're basically started me off with this, um, this sort of threaded stock version of Romeo and Juliet, yeah. then mm-hmm. like you need to hit those tones over and over again. And one of the things people don't like to admit, but it happens in writing all the time is like, you, there's always a structure that falls into like, yeah, basically, uh, what did Homer originally like, narrate the the hero's journey, where you got like the up the down the up the down the resolution and then like the final outcome i want to say plato was it plato yeah, yeah, I think right he... homer i don't know i don't know from these greeks <laughs> i don't know from these now you're going too far back <laughs> but yeah i mean it definitely this is i think in terms of the dark tower books this is the most traditional structure one mm-hmm. maybe that's why it's such a satisfying read i don't know we'll talk about that when we get to the end of the book but I just think the conversations and that they took the exact same course when it's always been about these two opposing groups is just really interesting. I don't know what that's going to mean long term, but I, I mean, I, or, and Stephen King is just like having fun and riffing and like playing with my brain. But I do, I don't think it's by accident that they followed the same exact course. But anyway, yeah. And then finally, like you said, man this thing ends on an ominous note Stephen King loves to end a chapter with like look at the scary moon (laughs) (laughs) and this time we get the demon moon and I I just want to read you this quote because if anything is flashing a red light that like nothing good is about to come of what happens next it's this whatever comes will be together he said but above them the demon moon grinned into the starry dark above the clean sea as if he knew a different future Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it is a wrap for our our young ends, dude. This that no way can this end well, right? Hmm. <sighs> yep, yep. The moon thing is just, uh, and actually, you're the one who pointed this out originally. Like Stephen King has used the moon and oh, its yeah. cycles throughout this section to kind of like hang his hat on what's coming next. Yeah, and and this is no different. Yeah, it's worth noting that this is the same moon that they're under back in Kansas is the demon moon. 
Oh, okay, okay. So we've come full circle now. So, all right. So now I know you said when we started out this episode that this is not the chapter for you, but after having gone through it together, how, what'd you think of this chapter? I mean, I I still like uh, insight into stuff and, you know, the revelations of the, uh, the pink orb uh-huh. are, are are bits of information that I actually really wanted. And yeah. so I got them. So thank yeah. you. Um, some of the other stuff like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm not as uh, subtle of a, a, a painter as you are. So the, the Romeo and Juliet stuff was probably a bit lost on me. Um, the couple interaction and the group interaction as a whole, like I didn't AB it like you did until just now when you told me this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so like, it's starting to mean a little bit different things to me than it did yeah. when I first synopsized this. Um, yeah. Overall, not bad. Not, you know, I want something to be resolved, and we haven't got that yet. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're heading next, right? The closing of the year feels that's the next name of the next chapter sounds no. <laughs> pretty, pretty final. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this chapter quite a bit. It does it stack up to the bar room, like gunfight, almost gunfight, or the the freaking punch sucker punch heard around the world. No, but it had the other stuff that I really love in these books, which is character and symbolism <laughs> and some mythology, and I and also rising tension i come back to this whole like hitchcock bomb under the table theory the bomb theory this chapter really dropped a bomb in the middle of my maybe there's a chance even though i know there's not a chance hope and and knowing that our kids are our little kids are heading into danger is is super suspenseful it makes me want to like pick up the book really bad which i think is a good sign i feel like i think we're gonna be singing a different tune and then in the, after the closing of the year but yeah i like this chapter overall all right speaking of the next chapter plan for next episode for those of you who are reading along with us we are going to be covering wizard and glass part three come reap chapter six closing the year all right connection stephen king universe there probably was some but i missed them if there were so if you if you caught any that i missed please let me know you can drop us a line at rachel at zombiegirls.com you can hit us up in the facebook group we are always lurking around there and let me know speaking of listener mail we did get a fun quick listener mail that kind of blew my mind what kind of yeah okay so it was a late addition to the casting okay okay so this email comes from our friend craig he's over on the facebook group but he missed the casting for flag and with a late entry has Honestly, I, I'm very close to calling this definitive casting for for Flag. So he says, I hate that I missed the casting for Flag on Facebook. Two quick suggestions. Joaquin Phoenix, based on his work in Joker, which I think he has the creepiness factor, but not the charm factor. Mm-hmm. Or, and this is the one that I'm like fully on board with now, David Tennant, based on his work from Jessica Jones. So, David are you Tennant. familiar with David Tennant? Yeah, the, the, the Doctor Who guy, right? Yes, but he also plays a lot of villains. So, he was the villain in Jessica Jones. He played, he's done, like, two different series where he, like, played real-life serial killers in Britain. 
Uh, he was in the first thing I ever saw him in was in the Harry Potter movie Prisoner of Azkaban, and he mm-hmm. was so creepy in that. Do you do you ever see those movies? I've seen them, but I don't even remember him being in there. Like my most uh, recent memory of David Tennant is either Doctor Who, yeah. or that weird um, detective thing where he was like a detective by the ocean. Yeah. Oh God, what was that? Oh, that was so good. Yeah, and I and so the rest of it, like I mean, I, I guess I remember Good Omens because, like, uh, obviously, Broadchurch. Broad yeah, Broadchurch. Good go. Omens. That's actually a perfect example. Like, but he's not really like a. So I mean, I know he's supposed to be like the, the ultimate bad guy there, but like he plays a waffling bad guy pretty well. I ha- have a harder time imagining him as like a bad bad guy. You know. Hmm. Yeah. So I think. For me, I agree with you. He's not like a true bad guy. He's kind of like chaotic, left of neutral kind of character. Um, but what what I think that for me proved is that he can do the like super charismatic, charming part of Randall Flag, but also because I've seen him in like in really scary roles where he plays emotionally manipulative um villains like in jessica jones or just like down and dirty creeps like harry potter i'm trying to find a picture of him in harry potter hmm. so well, for I me mean, david so, tennant was like i was just like when he said it i was like ding 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 that that is that is the two that is the character that is how i picture the man in black like super charming and someone who you could hate and or like love a little bit and be charmed by and swayed by, but also someone who can like switch into very like off putting creepy mode. Mm-hmm. He's kind of perfect for it. I mean, I like David Tennant, so any roles you want to give him is fine with me. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, then I'm calling it definitive. I mean, like if we could have Jeff Goldblum in the 80s, he would be my Randall flag. But if we were going to cast it right now today, no, hands down david tenet like it's- so when we gather all these together can we get someone to photoshop all of these people right? into, like, we should really cast? make like a like a poster you know like they'll have those posters with tons of characters mm. we should do a poster with a with all the <laughs> characters in it we need to, so that means we need to go back and pick like you and i i think maybe maybe one of these bonus episodes at the end of maybe the bonus episode at the end of this book we'll do definitive casting for everybody in this and then we'll make a poster Mm. and then we can maybe double back and like add some posters for the previous ones because you're right like i think we need to make our version <laughs> so if anybody has really good photoshop skills that wants to do this holler at your girl because <laughs> i'll do it if i have to but it's gonna look janky as hell it's gonna be the ms paint version <laughs> so yeah okay cool so speaking of speaking to listeners and our friends over at facebook I put a question on the Facebook group. So in the past, I've asked a lot of questions about what people think about the book, who they think should be cast and things, just various things. And this time I decided I wanted to get a little more personal with a question on the Facebook group. I wanted to know how everybody else kind of got on the path to the tower, right? Like, how did you discover the Dark Tower book? How did you get hooked sort of your personal origin story so i think i've talked about mine on the show that i was just sort of like as a teenager actually preteen, way too early obsessed with stephen king books and reading them and eventually i just kind of 
discovered the dark tower through that being a total completist i was like mm-hmm. just basically i like going through the at the front of the book there'd be a list of books by stephen king and i would just go down the list and then i got to the dark tower and it was after having just read a bunch of horror novels i got to the dark tower and it was something completely different and just instantly captured my imagination and it was the 90s so like so many people in our group i struggled through the the period where we waited for new books to come out and it was rough um (laughs) but yeah there's you know but i think i kind of have the most basic story of how you found it how about you dj how did you first find the dark tower Uh, so mine's a little weird um i didn't have to do as much struggling as you because uh um i kind of forgot and then came back but basically, um, I I got in trouble for something. I don't remember what it was, but um, I was assigned <laughs> community service to work at this like Goodwill, and and at the Goodwill, like my job was to like basically empty out boxes of trash that people would bring us that were like uh, useless items. And in there was remember those like plastic stamped big. Um, uh, uh, tape cassette holders where like you would like get the something shell holder ones. Yeah. The clam shoulder holder yes. ones where you like, if you signed up for some televangelist, he'd send you like 20 of his tapes in this like yeah. white preformed box that had like labels on, on the front. Uh-huh. And mine was like, I open it up and it's the first book on tape and like oh. literally on tape. And so what? like, yeah, yeah, and so, um, so uh, apparently some trucker uh, had been listening to these, like, driving around the countryside, and, like, when he was done, he just donated it to the Goodwill, <laughs> and so I pop, I had, like, a shitty car at the time, it was, like, a, a Ford uh, Fiesta or something like that. <laughs> it, Amazing. And it just had, like, a, a tape deck, and, and it was spray-painted, and, like, didn't have a lot going on for it, so I just put these Stephen King books in and, like, listened to them while I made the drive from my hometown 30 minutes away to where i was forced to work <laughs> to do community service and like listen to them all and then when i finished them i just put them back into the waste stream for the goodwill and they ended up on the shelf for sale for like three dollars amazing and was it just the gunslinger or were there multiple books no it was just the gunslinger so i i went through that and then like i sort of forgot about it for a little bit and then in um you know when you go from middle school to high school well, maybe this is just the case for me, but um, m- the middle school has one type of library, and then the high school has, like, a completely different library. Oh, interesting. So our school, like, from basically from first to fifth or fourth or third grade, maybe third grade, um, you have, like, one library, and it's, like, sort of aimed towards kids, like the Giving Tree and stuff like that is in uh-huh. there. And then, like, you get to, to middle school, and you have a separate library where, like, you might find a scandalous copy of, like, Lord of the Flies. Ooh. You know, <laughs> but, like, they're still ho- holding off on, like, 1984 and stuff like that. Right, right, you know, right, like, right. And, and then, like, before you know it, um, you're in high school, and suddenly you have access to, like – um shoot uh what's the one that starts with a v it's like a sci-fi book by um what's his name slaughterhouse um, five no no well it's, yeah you definitely a bunch of vonnegut stuff but uh-huh. also um the the sci-fi writer that did scanner darkly um Ooh. that that's based off of um mm-hmm. uh, valen i think it's valence or damn it now i gotta go google it i guess um, it's not valerian is it 
Is it Valerian? No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, let me see. Scanner. Because this is what I was like. I found my first copy of like a Snow Crash. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And you're just like, damn. And then like you're in that section where like things are um, are weird. Mm-hmm. And, and like you just find this. Uh, they didn't have a ton of Stephen King stuff, but for some reason they had the stand in the Dark Tower. Uh-huh. And like the art of the Dark Tower, then the fact that I had listened to the tapes, so I was like, okay, I'll start it on this. And then I didn't finish it until like mid mid early aughts. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I definitely I read the first four books, like read them, like paperback books. Um, but by the time Wolves of Kala came out, I had discovered the joy of an audiobook. And uh, also that they had them for free at the library. And so I would, I didn't have a tape, that, by that point, I did not have a tape deck in my car. So I bought a little boom box that I would, and not just for the Dark Tower, but for the audiobook tapes that I would, you know, like check out of the library. And so I'd have a boom box on my seat and I would play audio tapes while I, <laughs> while I would commute. Because my commute was like 40, 40 minutes to an hour each way. So I listened to audiobooks. And so then I started at the beginning and like went all the way through to the very end. Yeah. So I, I, I read them through basically through high school, like checking them out one or two or, you know, well, one at a time. But I was also trying to tackle um, The Hobbit. Uh-huh. And all the Lord of the Rings. Oof. So, like, I would alternate there is between. A big difference between The Hobbit and all the rest of the Lord of the Rings in terms of, like, tackling. Yeah, well, the the Hobbit was, like, that was probably when I was, like, 13 or 14. Right. Um, it's just my... such an easy peasy read. Then you get into, like, the Cimmerillion and you're like, Yeah, the other ones now. I didn't really <laughs> elevate up to the higher levels until I was, like, old enough to really understand it. Same thing with, like, um, shoot, what's the one? Where they ta- they tesseract and all the kids bounce the ball at the same time, and um, and Ender's like the, game the or... no and the witches like the 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 witches guide the children and the children try to save their dad from the giant brain. Uh, I'm just doing really bad at book names. I'm today. trying to think: is that Wrinkle in Time? Yes, maybe? Wrinkle in Time. Oh Thank God. you. Yes, yes. yes. I've been okay. read that since I was a little kid. I'm amazed I pulled that. Yes. Yeah, and then the the other one I was I was reaching for but failing was like Philip K. Dick. Uh-huh. So like, I don't like all of Philip K. Dick stuff. It's like hit or miss. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I still cannot find the book that starts with V. So someone out there knows okay. what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> and then you know, pony up, please. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, so that that was my experience. And then um, probably around I finished. I finally finished the last uh, paperback and. And then, like, two years later, I'm like, I should go back and listen to the whole thing because I'd found a torrent for <laughs> for the entire <laughs> book series. And so – and this is before, like, Audible was really big yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, like, I basically just barreled through all of the books in um, probably, like, a six-month period mm-hmm. of three to – two to three hours a day here and there at work. Yeah. And, and then just, like – re-examined my understanding of it and then now pretty much uh with this i'm like 95 percent uh listening to it yeah Um, just because it's easier for me to like go skateboarding or like do the dishes and keep up with where where i'm supposed to be right 
So I asked this question to our Facebook group and we got some really great stories from them. I'm going to save my favorite one for last, but let's start from the tippy top with our friend Brigitte. Bridget? It's, I think it's Bridget, maybe. Brigitte? Is that, Brigitte? It could be Brigitte. Bridget? I mean, is it uh, Diamoto or DiMaggio? <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> All right. Well, Brigitte, Bridget, please correct me. I'm not intentionally butchering your name. Um, I also have a name that gets butchered constantly. Last name, obviously not first name. Although you'd be surprised how many people mess up my first name. I have friends who I've known since I was like 14 years old who still spell my name wrong. So um, I feel your pain. Anyway, she said, my sister recommended to them to me uh, after I moved back home after getting out of the military in 2004. I was hooked immediately and had to wait for the seventh book to come out and then got so excited for Wind Through the Keyhole. Agree. Like, oh, I can't. When we finish, the, we're going to finish with Wind in the Keyhole because we're going to need like a palate cleanser after the pain. Um, I've reread them many times through the years. And honestly, I feel like the series has sh- shaped parts of my life. Now, if only I could get my sister on the podcast train, I know she would love you guys. All right, Brigitte's sister, join, join one of us. One of us. One, one of, of us. <laughs> one of us. All right. Sheldon says, I had read The Stand, Carrie, and Shining before finding the Dark Tower series. I was one of the poor constant readers that had to wait for Wizard and Glass to actually be written before the journey could continue. Same, brother. Same. And I remember I was like, a prequel? What the hell? So that, <laughs> one of the best things about doing this podcast and revisiting Wizard and Glass is I never liked it before. I never had a proper appreciation for it. And it may be my favorite. I don't know. We'll see what by the wow. end of the book. All right. Uh, Teresa says, my husband had read almost every book by King, and he introduced them to me when we first got together. It's taken a long time to get to the to Wolves of Kala. I love talking about the story with him and to bounce ideas off of him since he read it so many times. It's just a good date night topic. Aw, that's sweet. Bringing friends together, bringing lovers together. Under a uh, uh, demon moon. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's all kissing moon for you two. Okay. Stay in the kissing moon. Uh, all right. Henry says about, oops, about three years ago, I picked up a book. I picked up book one and two at a thrift store. From then on, I was hooked. I found your podcast at the same time. Oh my gosh. I guess we have been doing it that long. Um, and it really helped me keep track of what I was reading. Oh, that's awesome. Henry. I'm so glad we could help you with our neurotic, obsessive read through of this book. <laughs> Brenda says, I have been a constant reader for years. I, too, suffered the gap between the books. Lol. That's what makes rereading the series so great. Agree. Hard agree. Michelle says, I remember my father had a copy of Wizard and Glass. I was always curious about it. Found out that it was a seven series collection and have been hooked ever since all things serve the beam these are facts michelle uh okay (laughs) garrett says oh garrett has visual aids here there is a tattoo and a painting all right oh wow this is this is commitment right here anytime you have cast like a dark tower art we know you are a true dark tower head i don't even know what 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 are the fans (laughs) of dark tower called uh, uh, bean flickers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are now. 
Okay. He said, I honestly don't remember how old, uh, remember how I got a hold of the gunslinger. I was about 13, roughly 2001. All right, let's do the math. Just kidding. Um, and probably checked it out of the library because of the name. Or Ka willed it. I, either way, I just found it. After reading the first book, I was hooked. Researched and found the other books and was on a mission to find the tower. I waited a while for the tower to be finished and forgot all about them for a couple years while I was waiting. I had read the other books once per year up until that point. It's my magnum opus for, it was my magnum opus for most of my life. So many life lessons learned with each rereading and successive rereading. I got a tattoo last year after finding out about Wind Through the Keyhole. Even named my business after it. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I'm currently about halfway through reading The Gunslinger for my yearly rereading, and an ex of mine used to love perusing the vintage antique stores on Sundays and found books one through five first editions. Okay, that's dope. Uh, I was ecstatic, ecstatic for weeks. Uh, this is for DJ. Okay. I'm currently building floating shelves using pocket screws and show sugai band finish shoshugi uh, shoshugi, shoshugi? I, I am not looking at the the word that you're attempting to read but the pocket holes that's awesome that means that like basically he's using a jig to drill sideways into the wood oh and it hides the uh screws so that they like recess in and it just leaves a little like indentation and then that way uh you can attach a shelf and it looks like there's nothing underneath of it or nothing holding it that's cool so he says and and a Shoshugi band finish to match the bed frame and nightstand I've made solely to, to display those first editions. Nice. Nice, man. That's really cool. Um, I, I'm not a, as as apt with furniture building as I probably should be, but like definitely appreciate. Yeah. I would love to learn to make furniture. That's like on my weird bucket list of things to do. My dad's like a woodworker and like he makes furniture and shit and it just blows my mind. I I can machine it so like I can program it into the computer and like design it in a you know Windows environment. Mm -hmm. But like if you're like, hey, cut a perfect uh, um, four inch and sixteenth um, piece of lumber out, I'm gonna end up cutting you like a four and a quarter or something. <laughs> right, like right. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, I don't know. I think it's super cool. Like I I definitely go down sometimes the rabbit hole on YouTube of. People who are refinishing or building furniture or taking a piece of furniture and adapting it into something else. I totally have fallen down those rabbit holes. Anyway, John says, I was doing a, I was going on a camping trip and wanted a book to read. And I saw this book in a store called The Wastelands by Stephen King. I picked it up and started reading it. Obviously, it didn't take long to realize it was book three of the series. <laughs> I went on to read it and loved it anyway. So I read the first two after finishing book three. It's probably a good thing that I did it that way because I didn't really like the original version of book one. Ooh, controversial. Also, this was early in the early 90s, so I had to endure a long wait between books. This is like a shared trauma that us, Steve, like us Dark Tower, oh, sorry, us bean flickers have had to endure. <laughs> <laughs> Quit this, playing with your beam. Mm -hmm, beam flickers. <gasps> That's what we are, we're the beam flickers. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I didn't pronunciate well. So, like, quit playing with your beam beam flickers you i know, like it that's it it's official folks we're the beam <laughs> flickers if we ever do another podcast about this we're gonna call ourselves the beam flickers okay john says different john this is john m that was john e uh it was the summer of 1992 i like how he's painting a picture 
I was currently stationed in Virginia Beach, Virginia, waiting to leave to go on my first ship stationed in Guam. Oh, I've always wanted to go to Guam. I picked it up in the bookstore and finished it in a couple days. As I was reading it, a shipmate told me about book two, and later that same week is when I came across book three. Whoa, that feels like Whoa. some weird all things serve the beam uh, kind of vibes right there. All <laughs> right. Tim says, my older brother was a, a heavier Stephen King reader than I was, but I enjoyed what I had read of his as a teenager, as well as some of the films based on his work. Some being the operative word there. My <laughs> my, I mean, not everything can be sleepwalkers. That's all I'm saying. My brother read The Gunslinger uh, pre-revision. When the revised version came out, he read it and liked it, so how it set up better for the later books. I had just graduated from college, and he implored me to read the series, mostly so he'd have someone to talk to about it. I look back fondly on that time, as it was something that kept me connected to him even after I moved away from home. We still talk Dark Tower when we're together, referring to Aston, Popkins, and the like. I've run some questions and memes from this page by him, since he's not on Facebook. I'll never forget the face of my brother. Oh, I love that one! <laughs> That's so sweet! I love that one. Okay, so Craig, who also was the gentleman who sent us the definitive Randall Flagg casting from earlier, says... My parents had all these random bookshelves of novels I liked to look through, and one day I happened upon The Gunslinger. Up to that point, I had only read ho his horror, so it was a pleasant shock how good it was. I devoured that, found Drawing of Three on the shelves, and then The Wastelands. Everything was going swell until I looked for the next one. It was unfortunately the mid-90s, so I got stuck on maybe oh, no. the biggest cliffhanger in the entire freaking series <laughs> i mean it is a little cruel that like that book just ends with us on blaine hurtling towards death <laughs> i mean i have a rule in my life and i've stuck to this that i don't ever start a series that isn't complete uh mm. because i forget what series it was it was like um it was kind of like a wizard series but uh -huh. uh, it it got stopped because the author died. Oh, no. This is my fear of all the time I've invested into a song of Nights and Fire. Yes. <laughs> and so, like, he dies, and then it's not, it's, it was basically, like, five or six years before someone finally ghost wrote. And it's never of... the same when they ghost write. It's just never the same. <sighs> yeah. yeah. What am I, I'm going to be so butthurt if George picks it before we get those last couple of books i mean i'm not a game of thrones fan uh you know uh i think come fight you me, would but... like the books if when they're done i would recommend the books even though the show's not your jam but knowing what you what other books you like i think you would love the books so this is a this is a passion of the christ issue uh, um as soon as people tell you that you need yeah. to really enjoy this thing like the more they tell you the more you're like I will never enjoy this thing because you've yeah. told me so many times, Spite. Mm -hmm. I got you. There's definitely some things where I'm just like, I'm never going to watch it because I've been, it's like been pushed on me too much. So I'll stop recommending. Like maybe you'll find your way to it on your own. And I think you'll probably enjoy it if you do, but I will never bring, I will never push you on it again. I promise. <laughs> that is my pledge to you, fellow beam flicker. All right. Finally, the story that like, I'm not going to lie. I got a little choked up when I read maybe because I also have my own sort of, familial drama um but this one i think is really sweet and beautiful this one comes from Gigi. it says when i was 17 i hadn't had a real conversation with my mom in about five years 
I wasn't raised by her, and we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of basic stuff. One day at band camp, uh, my mom was plastered, (laughs) like fall down drunk. She was complaining that she couldn't find the gunslinger. I took it took me an hour for me to understand that which that she actually meant a book. Anyway, later she showed me the book, tattered and worn. She had read it about a decade prior and didn't even know that there were other books. So together we went on a journey of finding all the related books that we could find. After that, we've always looked forward to hanging out together. The gunslinger literally changed my life. Wow. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry again. <laughs> such a fucking softy ah that's such a that's a really beautiful story Gigi. i am moved you have moved me <laughs> i mean that's super interesting I, I come from a family of not readers so right like um you know there was no like uh bond you could be had with reading books because the, they weren't into them. right right yeah my dad wasn't much is not much of a reader although i think now he reads more than when i was younger but that's like definitely something that I shared with my mom. Like when I was little, she read to me every night before I went to bed. Like that, I, like I credit her. My love of books comes from like being read to when I was a little kid. I love books. You know, the only thing my dad really ever dove into was I'm pretty sure he smoked a shitload of weed when he was younger because <laughs> um, he drove like a 40 foot bus and was like a hippie to the nth degree. But um, he would listen to Jethro Tall and like tell me about The Hobbit, but not the rest of the oh, books, just The Hobbit. Just the Hobbit. I mean, that's. And, and it's like Jethro Tall like themed stuff is usually like right in line. With... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's there. They, there is a Venn diagram there for sure. And so I was just like, oh, so my dad was like um like just bumping up against the edge of being like a uh uh D player yeah pretty <laughs> smoked much a lot of weed okay, do we sorry. have any more to, to talk about nope, with that or that we... is okay. it um thank you everyone so much for contributing these were really great stories it's so fun to get to know the you know get to know you guys through these stories because obviously we share this you know very strong love of this book series so it was i was just curious like how did you all become nerds like us and so thank you for sharing your stories all right so where am i at okay let's do this as fast as possible let (laughs) let's do a quick review of episode six of the stand yeah episode six of the stand uh let me look at a different doc i have my outline of the stand i'm just gonna go through um not scene by scene, but I'm going to break these down a little bit into a little bit shorter sections. And I just want to get your take as we go. And then we'll just say what we thought overall of this and how we're feeling about the future, all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah. Okay. So this is episode six, the vigil. So in this one, we finally get to meet the trash can man. (laughs) Uh, The trash can man arrives in new, in new Vegas where flag orders him to use his weapon sensing ability to find a nuclear bomb because he wants to use it against the good folks in Boulder. So the trash can man played by Ezra Miller. This is a character that is a pretty important in the books. How do you feel about his introduction and uh, the uh, characterization? Um, it wasn't as good as like I would have wanted it to be. You mean you did not want to watch him masturbate to a fire? <laughs> no, it just uh, yeah, exactly. I was trying to trying to play play it cool here, but like no, yeah, it, it just uh, why why? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I I mean maybe it's because I still have like Max Headrooms like more wacky fun yeah uh trash can man in my head, but like. 
I didn't care for it that much. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's very divergent both from the original miniseries and the book. Like, he's definitely someone who was neuroatypical in the book because of, like, I mean, there's a whole backstory about him. But I don't understand where they went with this character at all. I don't. I mean, know. so like, I I. I didn't picture the trash can man as much of like a road warrior, like right. weird outfit. Like, I, I don't know. It just, it was like they, they were in a different universe than what yeah. we were. I, I don't know. I also find it very strange that they've waited till episode six of nine to introduce such an integral character to the books. Yeah. You you see him, he has this little special moment with the fire, then he's in Vegas. They cut out the entire thing about him traveling. We don't see, I mean, like, I get, like, maybe they're trying to excise the kid. I don't know why, but he's such an important character, and he is, throughout so much of the book, it's wild to me that we just see him show up so late. Yeah, and then, like, immediately assign a task and then off again. Right? It's very, I mean... I was thinking during the My Life for Your Life, I was definitely thinking about TikTok Man. I don't know, man. I'm I'm mystified by him on like every level. And I don't know if it's maybe because if this character is not working with this interpretation, let's just cut down his scenes or if they really just wrote him to show up in season six. But it, what it does is it makes it feel like he's not an important character, but he's a very important character. I don't man, know. Put, it's, put some pants on him. Pants on. Also, put some pants on. I mean, like, I'm not mad at seeing a person in their underwear. I'm not a prude. I'm not a prude. But no, it just, but it's like it you're just, a fire guy. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm even cool with like your weird like pyro man vests thing that you got going on. Like, whatever. Yeah. You, you can justify that. Even the eyepiece is like, okay, that's. I don't know what that solves, but sure, fine. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't know no pants like it looks <laughs> weird and like uncomfortable and like especially with like the way that belt's hanging from his like sort yeah. of weird vest thing i, don't know. I mean like he's oh, i will give Ezra miller this he is going for it i don't know what he's going for i don't know if he achieves it but he is going for it well if you take it like completely out of the context of of the stand itself and are just like hey i need a crazy guy <laughs> and like that's where like I feel like this character was designed for, um, you know, the new re- revival of Mad Max is because, like, yeah. that's what he looks and feels yeah. like. Like, one of the dudes chained to the top of, like, the race car right. with, yeah. like, skulls all over or something. Like, he'd fit perfectly in Witness there. But, like, it, yeah, in this, it's like, I don't know, man. He's a little over the over the top for the, the thing that's going on here. Yeah, he doesn't fit tonally in with the rest of the movie. That's a good call. Hmm. All right. So Tom finally figures out what the note from Dana meant. Uh, he gets a little help from Fiona Dorif, a.k.a. Ratwoman. And it means run. And he smuggles himself out of Vegas on a truck full of dead bodies just in the nick of time. Um, yeah. Tom, th- I will say, compared to last episode, there were a handful of very well-executed suspenseful scenes, and I couldn't remember what happened with Tom from the book because it's been so many years I, that um, 
I was, and I also because this movie, the series is diverging so much. It was making mm-hmm. me. I, I felt like this was a, a a an effectively suspenseful scene. What about you? Um, I don't remember how he got out of Vegas. Was it actually bodies? Because that was the part. Maybe. Maybe okay. Because like. At the end of that, I was convinced that, like, that was probably the case, and I was just not, you know, there's a gap in my my feeble old man mind. But uh, in, in all reality, like, that part of this this episode is really, really good. Like, him sort of interacting with people and, like, not really on the sly per se, but, like, figuring it out and then, like, climbing into the body pit just before yeah. they all roll in to, like, look around for the guy. You know, it's like... It was it was okay. I I was okay with that. Like especially in juxtaposition of the trash can man introduction. Like we're back to we're from crazy to normal again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tom. I'm I'm kind of realizing Tom is the only character I care about in this series. Like everybody else, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. But I mean, there's some him, moments with like, the kid. Out. Which one? Um, the little kid, the one that Joe, like, doesn't. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't necessarily want to see Joe die, but like, yeah. Tom is the only one that I felt like, like if it were Stu who was trying to get out, I would not care. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I should really care. He's the heart of that book, but yeah, well, we're uh, so on the splatter cast. Um, we were discussing the entire series in just like a kind of broad terms uh-huh. and one of the things i brought up and i, I think it it still stands true is like this could have really used about three more episodes yeah i agree because like if you had three more episodes you could have flushed out all the characters that we're supposed mm-hmm. to know more about like you wouldn't have to um assume that people come in with like prior knowledge yeah and then uh, on top of that like it's fine if you go a different direction but then give me some milestones to explain the direction yeah. in like a way that's meaningful, not in just a like throwaway line, go find me this bomb and then like out the door yeah. or like, where is he? And we get there and he's gone. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I don't know. And yeah. same thing with them. The judge's death. It's just like, you mean the one we don't even see? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, it's just like, well, why'd you do that? Uh, you know, thought you wanted me to, huh? <laughs> you know, like, right what we barely even got any development with her and then like that's it you know like yeah i I, for a long time i was kind of like on the fence how i felt about the flashback structure like at first i felt like it felt economical in a way that was gonna work but Mm -hmm. i kind of i i think i have made the decision that i don't like the flashback i don't think what ended up happening is we sacrifice for in order to save time or to minimize time we've sacrificed a lot of characterization like i think we needed to actually see them come to colorado in more real time so that we could invest in them like we don't we still don't know franny we still don't i mean like nick we saw some of it but like what do we know beyond the fact that he was like very sweet not much because we didn't spend any time on the road with him and i think you're right we needed additional episodes that that allowed us not to have to condense the part where we actually got to know the characters which was them making their way to colorado i think you're right you nailed it um now uh this is a complete weird thing that just randomly popped in my head but i know what i'm going for for halloween what um so i'm gonna get one of those metal trash cans Uh uh-huh and I'm going to cut armholes and leg holes in it. Okay. 
and then make a hat out of the top. Okay. And then uh, if you spray paint in, like, kind of bloody letters across the front, my life for yours. Oh, my God, you're going to be trash can, man! And then you put a, you know, put a dark tower emblem on the back or a keyhole. Oh, <laughs> like, my God, yes, do it. That's, like, it's stupid, but it's metaphor. You are officially and, like... invited to my Halloween party if you wear that. <laughs> <laughs> the Halloween party I didn't even know I was having until this very moment. I know. Literally like, just so I can have an excuse to see you in the trash can. I'm costume. like, that's such a, a dumb costume, but it's, like, funny and easy. And, like, also, like, the people that get it are going to get it, like, yeah. times a thousand. <laughs> And are going to be super stoked, 100%, 100%. Um, yeah, so uh, back in Boulder, Mother Abigail, we, last time we saw her, she was bouncing because she needed to commune with God again after they sent spies into Las Vegas without her say so. Uh, so she goes off into the, the woods, like very, very New Testament style, you know what I mean? To go like commune mm-hmm. with God and like atone for what had happened um and for being prideful and to try to reconnect and figure out what god's plan is and while she's out there she runs into one randall flag who taunts and attacks her yeah just (sighs) more like lack of real finality or any sort of like super danger just sort of like a shock scene yeah and that's it like you don't feel I don't know. You don't feel like it's committed to like this could be the end. Yeah, it's it's just like, ha ha, I got ya. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was our first kind of chance of really seeing Skarsgård's Randall flag, and I think you're right that the stakes do not feel real in this scene, and so you're not you're not like, yeah, he's gonna kill Rand. You don't think he's gonna kill Mother Abigail, so there's no real stakes. But yeah. what I was trying to do was kind of like look at him and try to figure out what he was doing with this character and i did find this to be like i kind of was like okay i thought he was pretty good in this for what he was doing the one thing that stood out to me though was when he's like i am legion which obviously is allusion to the bible and there's like the devil story of the like i'm you know the man that's possessed with all the demons and they go into the pigs and whatever but it made me think again about my like whole like who is randall flag is he just like a bunch of twinners and, and i was like oh, he's legion is that code <laughs> like, i thought i had cracked the code for a minute there does um, it count as canon though like i was a little confused by that actually so like yeah i, I, I well legion don't... is one of the names for randall flag which i'm guessing now comes from the sand oh okay okay yeah yeah uh, um yeah uh i don't know i still still a little confusing like it just doesn't feel like super uh super committed it, it the i was like actually at first i was really excited with some of the stuff that we were seeing in like the earlier episodes uh-huh. but as we like start to move on like it feels more like soldiering on as opposed to like really being like yes this is what i wanted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. am i wrong no you're you're not wrong you're not wrong Okay, so moving on. All right, but I realized I had skipped over something. So let me come back. Uh, after the judge gets killed, the man who, uh, one of Flag's men, has to go and apologize to Flag, and he chooses to not apologize. <laughs> and we get to see Randall Flag go full scary. Randall Flag. He follows him down the hall into the elevator, and then tears him apart with his teeth. And I did think, and I think maybe because I like the actor who he's who's like the bad guy and i did like to actually get to see 
evil Randall flag a little bit. I thought this this scene was actually pretty fun. There's a couple of scenes in this episode that I enjoy. I did enjoy. I I think there's a larger season problem, but this episode I enjoyed more than the last episode because of a couple things, and that was one of the which is is him kind of feeling intimidating, and some of it has to do with the fact that uh, you know Sarsgaard is an enormous man and this is the time that i felt like you could feel his presence a little bit Mm -hmm. and he seemed like a big and intimidating and i liked a little moment where you saw his little smiley face pen turn evil little touches like that worked for me how did you feel about the cutaway though like because i would have liked for it to be i would have liked to have been inside the elevator okay good yeah that was i was like oh man again with the cheapy cheapy peepy here you're just like (laughs) How do I, how do I cut back? Oh. I mean, I was also just immediately annoyed by the de- the the depiction of Vegas and the fact that once again, only queerness in the show in in New Vegas pisses me mm. off. Don't like it. Okay. Um. The other thing I liked was some of the things actually happening in Colorado this this episode. Uh, Harold and Nadine decide that they're going to take advantage of the fact that mother Abigail has gone missing. There's going to be a vigil at her house and they're going to blow up the whole place. This is Harold's plan. Um, so together they rig the house with explosives and there's a whole kind of back and forth where Nadine and Larry talk and you can see her kind of wavering a little bit, especially when she thinks that Joe is in danger. So there's a moment where like the kid actually, Joe actually talks to him and says like, yes, yes, she's two Nadine. She's mommy Nadine and she's Nadine Nadine. Yes. And this kind of puts him off. So when he goes to try to talk to her, he realizes that she's pulled the batteries out of the walkie talker and she's cut the wires on his bike. So she, he can't follow her. She cut the gasoline line from his carburetor to his engine because uh, it still rolls over over but when he's like the thing he grabs is the tube that runs from your carburetor oh. to the motor okay all right so i so that's thematically correct okay all right nadine's counterpart harold goes out quote-unquote looking for it and mother abigail almost kills Stu, but cowardly backs out at the last minute returns home to discover that franny has broken into his basement and discovered all of his explosives and like his manifesto and mm-hmm. for again, we have another moment where she's talking to him, and it seems like maybe he's swaying. She's her, breaking through, yeah. but then instead we get his big speech about the unfairness of the world, and he locks her in the basement and bounces. And then that weird shot where like he's standing in the yeah. stairwell, and they do that like door in the middle mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. and like that—that's it. Caught me completely off guard because it's so out of character for the design and, it, it and felt, uh, cinematography it of the show. It looked really cool, but it was like a different show all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Like I, I'm not criticizing. I actually really like that me too. style. Me too. Um, it, it really feels like a Wes um, Wes Anderson move. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I want to show you the dividers of the walls in a building. Uh-huh. Um, but like, but at the same time, it was such a strange move for the uh, cinematographer to to make that I was like, what? And then I stared at it. I had to back it up and like rewatch it for a second. Uh-huh. And he's like screaming, almost foaming at the mouth again. This is the Herald show. Yeah, this is the Herald show once again. And I feel like he stole the scene. I, I do think there's some actually subtle, good writing in this scene, too. The way oh, yeah. that they there have been times in the past where I've almost felt sympathy for this for him. You know, because I, I think the character, the actor is so charismatic in this role. It Sometimes it's been a little heavy handed, but I think this time. They did a really good job with the incel stuff. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you could understand 
his thinking. You can understand where he was coming from, his motivation as a character, without feeling a lot of sympathy for him. And I think that that takes good writing. And yeah, I, I really thought this this was probably a standout scene of the episode because again, Harold's what's his name, Owen Teague. That kid, that dude is like acting his face off in this. Yeah, yeah. And then the thing is, is like you get him, and then you the juxtaposition of her like breaking the window out and crawling under the thing and escaping, and like you're just not feeling it as hard as you were feeling it with him being like, oh, I hate the world. Yep. He's like, what does he say something about? Like with one pointed, cruel act, I can set the world right again. Ooh. Yep. Ooh, like the just the total um, entitlement and selfishness. And it's the Herald show, like internally for the character, but also for the show itself. Uh, Okay, so finally, Joe hears Mother Abigail's voice and finds her in the woods where she is rescued. Harold and Nadine activate the explosives just as Franny arrives, warn the committee, killing Nick in the blast, which should be a devastating moment because we have spent hours getting to know him. But instead, it's just kind of like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> yep, well, a guy who hasn't really said very much died, I guess. Okay. I mean, the reason I love or have any affection for Nick has 100% to do with Tom Cullen. Like, those touches of whether they're wearing matching jackets and where they're sweet, you know, like, they're sweet on the road. Really, truly, I think I'm just so invested in Tom Cullen that he got by proxy care from me. But mm. I don't know. All right, what did you think overall of this episode? Um, You know, I thought that they maybe spent their budget on the fire and the explosion yeah CG. i mean the, the explosion looked pretty good i gotta it say did actually like, i've seen um, a gif of it a few times or you can just see like bodies like rolling in the fire and i was like okay this I is watched the, the body i'm here for i watched the bodies fly away from the house as the explosion happened and like if you well, as a After Effects guy, I was like, oh, you freeze frame someone moving around on a green screen and then you rotated their body around because their legs stay kind of like straight. Oh, <laughs> so in interesting. So, yeah, I don't I I didn't catch that. And so I was just like, really? Come on, man. OK, so maybe uh, it wasn't that good. <laughs> but it, 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 but was, it was good. Lowly non After Effects users, it looked pretty good. <laughs> but o- overall, like still kind of a little um well i'm starting to sour a little bit on this series not yeah. like i don't hate it but i don't know that i'll be revisiting it anytime soon once we finish that's fair um that's because fair. it's kind of just i don't know yeah i feel like sorry no 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 i, I don't i mean it's not my show well, i didn't make it <laughs> i want your honest opinion um know, it's, but it's like the it's like the dark tower movie where you're like you want it to be good so yeah. badly that like you try it and you try and dig as deep as you can to find the things that you're like, yeah, this is good. And, and there's just not enough of that in mm-hmm. this for me to be like, you nailed it. Good. Yeah. Job, it kind of, I think, I think it was this episode. I actually enjoyed a lot more than the last two episodes because they felt like there was some tension, you know, in Colorado. And I liked the, some of the things about the Randall flag performance. But I feel like the problem is we had those two back-to-back episodes that were not great, and it sort of ran out the goodwill. You know what I mean? It was coasting on some goodwill, like you were saying about how you want it to be so good. And I think yep. those epi- those last two episodes kind of emptied the tank. Now we've got three left. Maybe it'll turn around. I don't know. I'm maybe our lowered expectations will benefit us as we go into the last few episodes. I don't know, 
like you, I don't hate it, but I don't love it, and I really wanted to love it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Awesome. Any other thoughts about the episode before we wrap it up? No, uh, we're we're almost through, so like, not too much further to find out if they uh, succeed or fail. Yep, that's true. Three more episodes. We can do it. All right. Uh, for those of you at home who maybe you have some thoughts on the episode, maybe we're missing the point and Trash Can Man is killing the game. Whatever the case may be, drop us a line. You can reach us at castofcaughtzombiegirls.com or you can hit us up over on the Facebook page. Um, we definitely are hanging out there and would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And uh, if you're looking for something to watch tonight and you are a whore and whore adjacent fan, uh, we have a VOD calendar on the Zombie Girls website where we keep track of all the horror and horror adjacent films and series that are coming out on video on demand, as well as on the 9,000 streaming services there are now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, we'll do the work for you. Come check it out. Click through. Do your thing. And if you love us, you want to support us, uh, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash zombie girls. You'll get ton of content for podcasts across the network as well as here at the cast of call like our extended episodes and this is the part where i tease some really cool content you're gonna get after the show if you're a patron except for this time really you're just gonna if you've ever been curious about what do rachel and bj sound like when they're just like goofing off and riffing on random <laughs> shit um and talking about our favorite books and uh and or weird uh asides our our favorite very strange TV series is from the 90s we were obsessed with. That is what you're going to get a little taste of on the end of this episode. So hopefully you will enjoy that. And if you enjoy that, you're really going to enjoy the bonus episodes, uh, which are something that you also get uh, as a patron. Anyway, <laughs> DJ, where can they find you on the internet, my friend? Uh, well, guys, you can swing over to deadlander.com and check out the Deadlander podcast. Uh, that's pretty much the only place that I am really hanging out these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Etsy, occasionally you'll see some stuff pop up there. Although, uh, it, with the nice weather, I have not been working in the shop nearly as much as high had planned. So uh, probably not some stuff for sale for another week or two. Uh, but, Rachel, what about you? Where can they find you? You can find me lots of places. Hopefully you'll find the both of us on twitch at some point not tonight but you and i should like talk about maybe some games we could play on steam that we could twitch but whatever that's a conversation for another time you can find me on the zombie girls podcast where we review horror films from a feminist perspective you can find me on the stream queens where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet uh our latest episode was willie's wonderland the new steven or uh nick cage joint I started watching that. That's weird. I know, I really liked it. It's, it's I'm weird. not all the way through yet, so don't spoil it. But like, it's just strange because like I wasn't expecting Nicolas Cage to not talk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so then you're just like, well, oh, that's weird. This is more weird. And like that they're like circling around that fact like yeah. quite constantly. Yeah. Uh, so it was a crossover episode with the Here's Johnny guys, and they had a conspiracy theory that he's like a synth essentially who's just been like sent to kill evil animatronics i don't know about that but i like it i I mean so it's a little nutty but i like it um yeah so and you can also find me on more deadly which is a podcast where we review horror films directed by women we have some really really exciting episodes coming out and we also have our review of slacks coming up which is about a pair of killer jeans that is a ton of oh fun. yeah that that looks so good is it out yet uh it comes out um on the i want to say the 18th 
so yeah so definitely check that out and i think i think that's it i think that's all of them <laughs> that's a lot i'm sorry you're I, i'm sick of myself i can't even imagine why you would want to watch all this stuff <laughs> dj save me from myself and take us out i mean so i, I want to propose a, for a moment if you will a nicholas cage conspiracy myself oh i um, like this already so my belief and self-imposed idea on why he doesn't speak during that entire movie is actually because Nicolas Cage has one rate for facial acting and one rate for talking. <laughs> and they ran out of money, so they decided to have him be quiet, thereby saving millions of dollars in production money on Nicolas Cage. There you go. Listen, <laughs> no, go, do go not find mess with national treasure, Nicolas Cage, okay? I know, where, where is the next one of those? Like, I would actually... You know they're making another... another one? Are they awesome? I yeah. love national yeah, treasure. Yeah, I think it's going to be on, like, Disney Plus or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, we will reconvene for the next Nicolas Cage podcast. (laughs) It's funny you say that, but we'll save that announcement for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. DJ.